Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. It's more like Boris Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the parallel universe of Theresa May's world where everything in the garden is rosy, where everyone is going to agree with you in the end and where you convince yourself that absolutely everything you do is for the good of the country. Over the weekend, it became crystal clear that the skids are definitely under the Prime Minister. Whatever happens in the next few weeks, she is toast and her days are no doubt numbered. Meanwhile, her campaign to launch a third meaningful vote looks set to hit the buffers again today because the votes she needs are still simply not adding up. We were expected to be back in the tent of shame again tomorrow down on Westminster's College Green, but it's looking less and less likely. We will bring you all the developments as they happen throughout the course of the day right here on Talk Radio, and nothing may happen until quite late this afternoon. All the usual suspects are still spinning their spin, calling for all sorts of strategic manoeuvres, but we are still stuck in the sand, I'm afraid, inexorably stationary and staring at the walls. What could possibly go right? And it's only 11 days until Brexit, of course. 0344 499 1000. First up today, we're going to celebrate all that is great about Britain instead. Railways that don't work, health services that can't deliver, and a nanny state that is getting ever more overbearing and is literally going out of control. Things are so bad that the fire service is now asking Peppa Pig, a children's TV show, to stop being sexist about firemen. Are you having a laugh? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, amongst other things, we're being told this morning uh, not to eat too many cream eggs in case it causes obesity in our children. We're also being told, as we were last Friday by Alcohol Focus Scotland, that celebrities should not really be getting themselves involved in doing advertising for the drinks industry because it makes children want to drink more when they see someone like David Beckham toasting whiskey in his right hand. I mean, we really don't need to have people telling us how to live. We really don't need to have people telling us what to do. What we really need are people running the country who actually you know what they're doing. Wouldn't that be a good help? After all, we spend most of our lives at the moment arguing about Brexit, about what Britain should be, about what Britain will be, about providing a good and safe environment for us to all live in so that we've all got protection from uh, our horrible bosses, so that we've all got environmental protection from the horrible air quality, and we've all got a great life to look forward to because it would be the same as it is right now. Well, right now, we're being told what to do by an increasingly ridiculously large number of people working for the nanny state. Don't do this. Do that. Don't say this. Say that. Don't bother mentioning this because that might offend somebody. It's absolutely ridiculous. Let's talk uh, to somebody sensible about this. Daniel Pryor, head of programmes at the Adam Smith Institute. Daniel, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. How's I'm, it going? I'm, I'm all right, but I'm slightly wound up this morning, Daniel, I have to say, because you know what? I'm sick to death of being told what I can and can't do. I thought we were supposed to live in a free world. Yeah, tell me about it. I'm in exactly the same mood, to be perfectly honest. There's a couple of things, especially uh, this morning, as banning McDonald's monopoly and trying to ban junk food ads before 9pm, and both of those measures, I think, are just absolutely ridiculous. 
Well, we've already had Sadiq Khan, haven't we, banning fast food adverts supposedly from the underground, banning adverts that he thinks might offend people from the underground. And, I mean, you know, surely we are allowed to have some free will in this country. I mean, why on earth are these MPs not just doing their jobs, getting on with the job of, of either leaving or staying in the European Union, whichever way it works out, and actually just doing what we pay them to do? You'd hope so, wouldn't you? But sadly not. And the thing is, a lot of the time, they really don't know what they're talking about. This proposal to ban junk food ads before 9pm, there's yeah. actually no legal definition of junk food. So what they use is a category called high in fat, sugar and salt. Mm. The problem with that is it includes things like raisins, sultanas, cheese, half fat cheese. And that isn't tight enough. PHE, Public Health England are looking to tighten it up more to include 89% of fruit juice and smoothies. So... They're going to be trying to ban adverts for things that are in the five-a-day NHS stuff. It right. seems absolutely they, they haven't thought this through at all. And how ironic is it as well that it's coming from Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, who himself used to be very high in sugar and fat, but now that he's slimmed down, wants everybody else to do what he did. Well, we should be a poster boy for personal responsibility, right? And now today looking to crack down on McDonald's monopoly. I mean, I used to do that with my dad some weekend after playing football, and it was a treat occasionally and i think that's perfectly reasonable and parents are able to take responsibility for their kids but he thinks that you know things like sugar is the new tobacco yeah. you hear these sort of phrases pop up all the time well i mean if sugar is the new tobacco how about he bans tobacco because this is the other great hypocrisy to me of all politicians they love the money that they can collect in taxes from selling tobacco so they're never going to actually ban it they're never going to make it illegal but if they think it's so dangerous to everybody why are we still allowed to buy it in a shop yeah, it seems like there's this double standard, isn't there? And it's one of those things where politicians, they realise they need to raise the money from somewhere, but they really at heart don't want people to be able to make the choice to enjoy things that might be unhealthy occasionally. And when it comes to things like advertising, for example, I think everyone realises, yeah, adverts are annoying on TV and kids pestering you is annoying, but treating fruit juice as like a huge threat is not going to make things better. It's going to hurt the sort of revenues. I mean, I listened to a McDonald's ad on talk radio just before... I came on, and if you ban things like that, then you're going to get less revenue, you're going to get um, poorer quality TV and things like that. Mm. So it's a big problem. And well, it, well, it really is. Not going to help. But also, it all feeds in, does it not, Daniel, to the world in which we now live, where you know people who say certain things are, are kind of shunned, people who have certain views are considered to be worse than lower than the sort of a, a snake's belly. You know, we've become a very intolerant society, it seems to me, and bizarrely, the people who are making it more intolerant are the ones that are constantly preaching tolerance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's definitely this parallel between cracking down on free speech and cracking down on what people can eat or drink. It's this sort of attitude that actually we know best and you don't, and we're better placed to make decisions for you because we're the smart politicians and actually you don't know how to live your own life. And yeah. I'm frankly sick of it, to be honest. There's well, exactly so right. Proposals I mean, exactly, exactly right. And I mean, I'm not the world's greatest supporter of the United States of America, but whenever I go there, I'm always absolutely thrilled to see that people are much, much more willing to, to live their own lives and much less willing to be pushed around by politicians. I was over there recently talking to some people about the whole Brexit fiasco, and they were saying... What, you mean you let these politicians tell you how you're going to live? You let these politicians do what they want, but they tell you that you have to live the way they want you to live as well. They couldn't believe it. They were absolutely sort of dumbstruck. <laughs> yeah, I think we have this uh, less of that culture in Britain, although I, I kind of take heart with things like the sugar tax when people realise that Lucas Aid and Iron Brew were absolutely ruined. If you have a quick Google search of Jamie Oliver's name or Iron Brew after that sugar tax came in, I think there is a kind of backlash against this and one day they're going to push it too far with these 
nannying interfering measures and at the end of the day politicians are going to realize that people are sick of it yeah and i mean surely the best way to show them that we are sick of it is at the ballot box where we kick them all out of office but we don't seem to quite ever manage that yeah it's a shame to be honest that all of the parties seem to be involved in this i was speaking at the lib dem conference at the weekend and they're supposed to be the liberal party and on the panel i was at they were saying the sugar tax isn't enough we need to raise it we need to extend it to chocolate and things like that so i think there's a real electoral dividend for anyone that comes out against all this nanny state nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand where we sort of where it all started to, started to go wrong, really, because there was clearly a switch, was there not, uh, in terms of our health as well. We've got Public Health England who are constantly giving out advice. We have the chief medical officer constantly telling us, you know, probably no alcohol is probably best rather than one glass of red wine. You know what I mean? It just goes on and on and on and on, and and it's and it's kind of it's mind numbing in the end. It does. And I think there's a place for things like education and letting people know the consequences of different food and drink decisions and stuff. The problem is that the sort of people in these quangos and the people in these bodies, they kind of get a bit carried away and they realize it's not just about helping people to make the choices they want, helping them make more informed choices. They get this kind of power kick out of saying, well, actually, we're going to try and create a society we think is healthier, regardless of whether people actually enjoy an occasional yeah. burger now and then. Yeah, no, exactly right. And also, here's the other thing that really sort of gets my goat, is we seem to have developed into a, into a country where, you know, we're very good at being critical of people, we're very good at telling people how they should be living, but we're not actually very good at running very much. You know, the trains don't run very well. The NHS is terribly badly managed. You know, the school system is creaking. Um, you know, the housing situation is terrible. We haven't actually got any real visionary people running anything anymore. Yeah, there's a kind of not any ideas out there anymore. There's no one that's that passionate about a particular approach to politics. It's all just tinkering on the edges. Like this sort of nanny state stuff is a classic example, but it's in loads of different other areas as well. And the problem is there's no vision. There's no kind of dynamism, no passion about politics anymore. It's all just these tiny little piecemeal measures that aren't going to they're going to make our lives worse and they're going to stack up. So what is the answer, Daniel? I mean, you guys are in, in, in the Adam Smith Institute, a place where you sit around thinking a lot of the time. I mean, there must be surely some kind of um, manifesto that we can draw up for sensible people uh, for us to actually move forward and say, enough already. You know, can we actually start doing things as opposed to just talking about them? Well, we work with all the parties and try our best to influence what they're trying to do. But especially a few months ago, we released uh, 100 policies for Theresa May that's on our website. And that's trying to put out a vision of Britain that's uh, more liberal, more open and, and more prosperous and free. So we're trying our best, but it's not easy in the current political climate and everything's focused on Brexit. And actually all of the domestic policy stuff is just being thrown under the bus. Yeah, but even, I mean, I can't think of anything particular that this government has done which has been particularly good for anybody. Can you? No, nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, they've been in quite a long nothing. time. Yeah, they've got all this time, and Brexit's been such a distraction for them. They just haven't had the chance to, well, you could say it's a good thing they haven't had a chance to experiment with other policies, judging from what they're coming out with at the moment. But there's definitely a room for politics to move towards a better direction here and yeah. it just isn't no, I mean, at the moment, all we get is people telling us why things can't be done. I mean, I was watching a TV show the other night, and we've all been to Europe. And, of course, at the moment, there are people, and we're going to find out about this later on today, but people are sort of uh, taking terrible trouble on the Eurostar to get from here to Paris and Paris to here because there's a customs strike going on. Nothing to do with Brexit. It's just the French being, you know, sort of a bit troublesome as usual. We've got terrible riots going on in the middle of Paris every single weekend, tear gas, you know, sort of battle lines drawn and all of that. But what they do have in France is double-decker trains. Now, I know you might 
say that I'm being a bit ridiculous here, but why can we not have double-decker trains? You know, we know that the capacity on the railways is at peak uh, passenger levels. We can't get any more passengers onto the trains that we've got. But if we had double-decker trains, surely there would be more room. I'd go with double-decker trains. I think it could be worth a shot. We actually we had a paper out on trains recently on open access, trying to get more competition on the railways on long-distance lines. Yeah. So the government seems to be perhaps open to that possibility. That would be nice. But I like the idea of double-decker trains. But I do. Honest. But, I mean, I know for a fact that if I start talking to people about it, they'll say, oh, well, there's a reason why we can't have double-decker trains, and it's because the bridges are too small uh, or, you know, the, uh, the the gauge is too narrow or, you know, oh, we've got overhead electric wires. You know, there's always a reason why we can't do something instead of a reason why we can. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's the case with the kind of housing crisis as well. You get a lot of these tinkering around the edges policies and it's putting off a lot of young people yeah. from getting involved in politics and actually being passionate because they can't afford a house. I right. mean, I live in London myself. I can't afford a house and I don't think I'll be able to for a very long time, whereas, you know, my parents' generation were able to yeah. do that. And yeah, but I think we need to rethink all of that as well, because in the end, it may well be that owning houses is not the way forward. And you can own a house if you want to go and live in a part of Britain where it's a bit cheaper to buy a house. But obviously, that's not where you want to live. You know, so maybe in the end, that isn't should not be the be all and end all of everybody's kind of ambition. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm not saying everyone has to own a house. I think that, you know, a lot of people do want to. Um, I'd be perfectly happy renting for an awful long time in my life but yeah. it's about the prices itself it's about the fact that housing takes up such a big proportion of our incomes at the moment and the simple reason is that we're just not building enough houses <laughs> that's one of the things that i think could really change people's perspective on politics and kind of make them a bit more engaged a bit yeah. less cynical but also we don't have any kind of planning we don't seem to have any long-term uh, view of the world whatsoever i mean i drove through on a, on a brand new road yesterday it's just been finished down in sussex right and it's been clearly built through a very rural area where they're going to build a load of houses now i don't know how long it's going to take them to build those houses but i'll probably be dead by the time they're finished and there's no mm. indication of whether they're going to build a new hospital to go along with that no indication of whether they're going to build any new schools to go along with that you know there is no kind of joined up thinking it seems to me at the risk of sounding a, a little bit too optimistic after our chat this morning i think there are some good things to to think about we've got um stephen pinker who's a harvard professor that's coming in to do one of our lectures in parliament this year and he's coming in and his message is that actually things are getting a lot better if we look at the world overall if we look at things like poverty rates if we look at things like literacy child mortality they're all uh, going down. And although we can get caught up in things like Brexit, although we can get caught up in nanny statism here in the UK, when you take a worldwide view, things are actually getting a lot better. And I think that's something to kind of take a little bit of optimism <laughs> from. <laughs> Come on, Daniel. If you'd said that at the beginning, we'd have had no conversation. I mean, of course... Well, that's why things... I left it till the end. <laughs> well, things are supposed to be better, though. We are not supposed to be living in Victorian times. We're not supposed to be needing to send, you know, young children up chimneys anymore uh, or send orphans to, uh, you know, fight in wars. That's not what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be about becoming more civilised. But my feeling is that as individuals and as intellectuals, we're becoming less civilised. Yeah, I think especially the Brexit debate's just poisoned that, to be honest. Yeah. It's divided us more. And we're I mean, not it's all very well having 25 different kinds of pasta at your local supermarket and being able to, you know, get from point A to point B when point B is in Thailand on a plane relatively cheaply. But, you know, there's more to life than that. There is more to life, but I think I would stick up for having 25 varieties of pasta in a supermarket. I think there's it's some so value It's so bourgeois, Daniel. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's me all over, I'm afraid. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. All right, Daniel, thanks very much indeed. Daniel Pryor, Head of Programmes at the Adam Smith Institute, who disgracefully at the end comes in with, but things are a lot better than they used to be. Well, I'm sorry, they may be a lot better than they used to be, but so they should be. My point is is that the, the state of our minds, the state of our uh, society, the state of our kind of infrastructure in the world uh, and in the places where we need things to work properly is woeful. Hardly anything works in this country. The idea that we all put up with it is ridiculous and nonsensical. And instead of being told what to do by our MPs, we should be telling them what to bloody well do, shouldn't we? Independent Republican Mike Graham got lots of great tweets coming in. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio. You can tweet me at IROMG. Uh, lots of you agreeing with me that we have absolutely woeful planning in this country, not just in the sense of planning uh, actual cities and actual towns and actual roads and actual transport networks. I just mean, in general, we have more bureaucrats, we have more administrative people working in this country, more people supposedly planning what it is that we're going to do, and yet they don't seem to do anything. Instead, what we get are the likes of Tom Watson telling us not to go to McDonald's or not to eat too many cream eggs or not to call the Peppa Pig fireman a fireman. I mean, for God's sake, is that the best we can do? All right, uh, 0344-499-1000 is the number to call us on. We're going to talk now to Paul Conyu, columnist for the New European uh, and, of course, a former colleague of mine uh, of many years standing, I'd have to say. Amazingly, still talking to me. Paul, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Very well indeed. Now, I'm reading an awful lot of people lumping on to David Lammy that uh, Comic Relief lost uh, or made eight million quid less than they did last year. And it's all being put down to his white saviour row uh, that he had, of course, with uh, young Ms. Stacey Dooley. I'm not sure it's in completely down to him, but, but he certainly turned a lot of people off Comic Relief, didn't he? Yeah, possibly so. I mean, but I, I think you've also got to look at a wider picture here, Mike. I think, you know, 600,000 people less watched it, 8 million quid less raised. The, the Mail on Sunday yesterday, very strange, but we talked down to Jeremy Corbyn. Now, as a lifelong Labour supporter, but a non-Corbynista, I'm, I'm, I'm often pl- pleased to actually blame Jeremy Corbyn, but I don't think you can blame him for this one. The Lammy one was interesting because I, he made some valid points, although I didn't share all of them, and I still made my own contribution yeah. on Friday night. And picking Stacey Dooley was a rather inappropriate target for him, I, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think what course. he managed to do, though, was he managed to kind of alienate both sides of the argument because he alienated those uh, who were probably a little bit unsure of whether the money they spent was being used properly, if you like, and then uh, upset those who didn't want to be seen as white saviours. So, so he kind of upset both sides of the, of, of the aisle. He did to a point, but I did I, I did share some of his views, but not all of them. But I think there is, I think there is this temptation. I think they're behind the curveball. I think there's some lazy producers involved here, and as much I think the public are We've got one of them. tired of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you haven't. In fact, I'm sure they're all dedicated they are. and lowly paid. They are. But in fact, but in fact, the um, but the fact that. Uh, 600,000 people are turned off. I don't think you can put down to David Lammy or politics generally. I think I think there's a feeling that the format is somewhat tired. The celebrity factor is being overplayed. And I think it's time to revamp, revamp 
comic relief and, mm. and other similar charity, charity TV quotes events, as they like to call them, rather than programmes. And in fact, you know, and bring in a grittier approach in which perhaps more professionals are involved journalistically and the charity sector. And it's more of a documentary yeah. treatment, not devoid of celebrities, but with a celebrity factor overplayed. And I think some people are beginning to feel that... Um, you know, there are celebrities there who are genuine and some who probably are there to burnish their um, positive PR, aren't I? Sure. Uh, a lovely I mean, man, I must say, I was, I, was, I was very much turned off it when I found out that some of the people hosting parts of it were still being paid and weren't actually giving their services free for charity. But also, I Precisely. think you've got to also take the view, Paul, I don't know what your, what your thoughts are on this, but I, I didn't watch the show. I was actually working, but I did watch back the uh, the four weddings and a funeral thing the skit which was one way too long two way too politically correct and three just not very funny just wasn't very no. good well I didn't think the program generally was you know with some exceptions was um, was very good but again I come back to my point that that six hundred thousand fewer people didn't yeah. didn't watch because of David because of David Lammy uh, attacking Stacey Dooley Stacey of course is a serious documentary maker yeah. although some people would argue that that Strictly Come Dancing and one or two other things she's done since. She's now turning herself into more of a of, um, of a wider of a she's wider been, yeah, celebrity but she's been, face. She's been a lot closer to proper African poverty than David Lammy has, I think you'll find. Well, I know Lammy's been out a few places, to be fair to him, so I, I'm, so I'm not going to point, point that out. I mean, some people... I mean, I like Stacey Dooley, but I, but yeah, some people would, would argue, though, that she perhaps is, you know, undermining her serious documentary maker credibility by going into things like Strictly and other things she's done since, but that's a different that's a different issue, and I'm sure both her agent and her bank manager yeah. are delighted. No, absolutely but, right. But I, but I do, but I do think, I do think the, I think the whole format needs needs to be rethought and, uh, you know, and not entirely changed, but certainly the balance has to be, the balance yeah. has to be altered. It's also, I mean, if you think back, if you think back over the last 12 months, it's not been a great year for charities in any event. It might well be that quite a lot of people have refused to give them money, given what they've seen happening at Oxfam and children in need um, and uh, save the children and all that sort of stuff. You know, so, so yeah, I mean, the, there could the be board, a knock-on effect on the, there. Yeah, I'm on the board of a national charity, which, you know, which isn't involved in overseas aid. It's children's medical research. But, mm. but, but yes, I think there, I think that is a factor. There's a there's a, a mixture of charity fatigue, charity cynicism over some of the absolutely valid journalistic exposes that have been done by papers like the Times, and you know, and 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 all and also and also let's not forget Brexit and lingering austerity. People are are in fact drawing their horns in financially, and I think that's a factor too. Plus the fa- plus the simple statistics. If you lose six hundred thousand viewers, you you probably are going to lose eight million quid. Yeah, right. On your on your previous uh, years, figures. yeah, because I mean, even, even if they only all gave a tenner, that's six million straight away, isn't it? Precisely, and comic relief as well as that had its ups and downs. I mean, if you look back, it had a record 2011 with 108 million, but back in 2007, it only raised 40.2 yeah. million. So, 63 million this year is down on 71 million last year. But those are, but those are probably not that surprising in the current climate, you know. Mm. And you add to it the David Lammy's bit of spice, but I don't think. Uh, I think my guess with, 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 with the David Lammy factor probably only cost about one million yeah. of, that, uh, of, that, of that eight million drop. Oh, well, well, I look forward to him uh, replenishing their uh, their coffers with some.
money from his own uh, expense account. But I mean, the other thing that I th- think a lot of people find uh, annoying, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this, is that, you know, in London, you get on the tube on your comic relief day and maybe the day before, and there's all sorts of people there from the tube station uh, operations sitting there in their uniforms collecting money in buckets. And I'm like, just make the trains run, please. I don't really need you sitting here collecting money in buckets for comic relief. If you want to put a bucket over there and somebody put money in it, that's fine. But don't stand oh, there at the top Mark, of the you're escalator. A, you're, as cynical as you, you're as cynical as you ever were, aren't I you? I know. Well, I am. It's true. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm now not, I'm not just cynical. I now get annoyed about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, what's the point of being on air? I'm just not going to... Yeah, the show like yours. Well, that's true. I mean, people say to me, why are you so grumpy? I'm like, what do you want me to do? Come on and say how happy I am every day. But listen, Paul, do you see the end of comic relief in sight then? No, I don't. No, I don't. But I do, I do think this year might lead to a radical or fairly radical rethink of the format. And that would be no bad thing. And to that extent, although I only half agree with him, to that extent, I think David Lammy may have done it a service. Mm, I think you may well be right, actually. Paul, thank you very much indeed. Paul Conyu, columnist for the New European. Uh, we'll be speaking to him again soon, I'm sure. But so uh, what do you make of the whole comic relief thing? Did you give money last year and not this year? Uh, you can text us, of course, uh, on 87222. That text will cost you 25p plus your standard network rate. You can email us uh, as well uh, at Talk Radio. You can also uh, send us a tweet uh, at Talk Radio as well. Lots more going on. We've got many more of your calls to take. We will be talking uh, throughout the day uh, about Theresa May and the Brexit plan because we are only 11 days away uh, from what can only be described as nothing happening. This is Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Jungle sales are organised and pamphlets have been posted. Even after closing time, there's still parties to be hosted. You can be active with the activists or sleeping with the sleepers while you're waiting. You're listening to the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk Radio in association with The Times. It is politics. Uh, it is tamed. Uh, we've got loads of calls to take. You can make them, of course, to this number 0344. 0344- 499-1000. It looks as though this week is going to be another one of those wheel-spinning weeks where nothing really happens. I mean, how much more of this can we put up with? Let's talk to Ray, who's in crew. Hello, Ray. Good morning, Mike. Morning. Thanks for taking me call. Thank yeah, you. I, I'm phoning, really, with regard to the discussion you were having earlier about no vision. We yeah. don't have politicians with any vision. Now, I was thinking about 71, I started as an apprentice in the Manchester area in engineering. It were massive areas. They employed people from labourers, to the highest paid jobs. You know, your whole whole spectrum of different paid jobs. Now, you've got Elon Musk, you've got people like that who are developing motor cars mm. in America. Why can't we? We could have a potential of £190 million a week net yeah. from leaving the EU. Why is that money not invested in 
manufacturing base. Yes. You, you know, we, well, one of the things I don't, out. one of the things I don't get, Ray, is why we're not being told this constantly. We keep getting these messages that you know Brexit's going to be terrible. We're going to run out of yeah. food, medicine. You know, we won't yeah. be able to go anywhere. Why is Theresa May and her cabinet not being out there every single day telling us how great it's going to be? I, don't, I think because, Matt, they've never really done anything, have they? We, you know, we, we right. don't wish it to sound... Most of them have been lawyers or they're researchers for a political party or a union. They're very few self-made people, I think, in True. fact. So they've never had to achieve anything, really, to be honest, have mm. they? You know, and I think we, we, we need a few more people from, you know, entrepreneurs, that sort of people. You know, the Sunderland shipyards, they used to turn out a ship every nine days. Yeah. How many people did that employ? We spoke uh, a few months ago about building prison ships. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be any vision. They talk about no food, Mike, if we leave your... I live in Mid-Cheshire, South Cheshire. Mm. You can get in a car, a train, and travel it in any direction, and you just go through green fields, yeah. mile after mile of green fields, full of nothing. Right. Only grass. We don't have cattle. You know, if this was to be a big uh, dairy area at one time hmm. and why it's just you think the people that could be employed if politicians have more vision sure. of, of the future no you're absolutely right but they have not what they haven't done is assisted industry in any way shape or no, form no. they've allowed industry to die uh, they yeah. basically uh, the only real thing that we have now in this country is a big financial center which was encouraged by gordon brown and tony blair and it yeah. made uh, a mess of our finances uh, yeah. but it, i mean it's a good business to run i suppose but it doesn't again it doesn't it's, it's all making secondary money it's not producing anything and it only employs people of a certain level as i was saying if you had an engineering works and factory you had people that were laborers mm. it doesn't, there's a lot of concern now you get jeremy corbyn talking about the low paid and and uh, people on on benefits well you had some that that, pe that employed people at the lower end of the scale yeah those people there isn't if you've got financial sectors and this very high you know highly educated highly skilled uh, IT. Those people are not being employed anymore. Mm. And I think this is the trouble in a lot of these areas yes. in the north. The, the, the lower, there aren't the lower paid jobs anymore. Whereas in manufacturing or industry, building, you had an opportunity yeah. for those people. It employed, I say, from clerical staff to financial staff to labourers to skilled mm. workers to managerial staff. And I just wish somebody would have a little bit of foresight mm. into the future, you know, instead of just saying, oh, if we leave the EU, it's the end. We're not no, going to do anything. You're absolutely right, Ray. Absolutely right. Brilliant call. Thank you very much indeed. Ray, making a lot of sense there. Let's look to Daniel, uh, who's in Epsom. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Mike. How you doing, mate? Yeah, very well, sir. Very well. Sorry if you slightly calmed down a bit from earlier on. <laughs> yeah, take a chill it's good, to, it's good to get it out. No, I always feel better after I've said what I've said. You know what I mean? No, I certainly do. But I just wanted to ring up, and you, you said we were talking about government not having any vision and the government mm. not being very good. And I'm ringing up to say the opposite, actually. Okay. I, 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 I actually think their policies, the current government, apart from Brexit, right, which they're obviously mucking up yeah, royally, right. but I think, I think any government, you could have put... Any, any government in the world in charge, and they dealing with the EU, they would have mucked it up. Well, but, except, but, I suppose, I would say one caveat to that. If she hadn't had that election, and if she had a bigger majority, then it would all be happening now. It would be, but, I mean, this poor deal would be going through, which we still don't want. But what, what I would say is, if you look at the country as a whole, outside of Brexit, yeah. their policies have actually been working. If you look at universal credit, whilst being, um, you know, whilst having its issues... There are more people in work than ever before. That's true, yeah. but you would... I mean, I'm, I'm, you're surely not, you're not going to stand there and say that Universal Credit has worked out well, because it hasn't. 
Well, it's put an extra £11 billion in the, in the coffers of the Chancellor, and if that continues to happen, then there's no more deficit, is there? And then if there's no more deficit, then we can start paying off the debt. And then you could also look at... the. That's a very optimistic view, Daniel, I'd have to say. Well, it's a, it's, it hasn't happened in such a long time. Because of the, the, the amount of people coming from the EU and outside the EU to work, particularly in the low-skilled areas, wage suppression has been you know there for sort of 15 years. The moment you have a hostile environment... Uh, all, all of a sudden, you know, less people are coming, wages rise, more people in work. There was 11 billion extra in the coffers over that quarter. Just for, you know, let's say yeah, it's a drop in the ocean, though, isn't it, when you think about how much money they're borrowing and how much debt there actually is? Well, borrowing's at a record low. See, this is the main problem. People talk about the debt itself. The debt isn't the problem yet. No, but what they the have to borrow is... to pay off the debt. I mean, the problem at the moment is yes. the debt is so huge, Daniel, that they're still borrowing to pay it off. Yeah, they, well, they have to. That's the nature of the debt that yeah, they Yeah, that's what I mean. But, so they're still borrowing, but, but, though. But the big issue isn't the debt, though. It's the deficit. Because all the time you have a deficit, you'll have continuous borrowing. As soon as you get the deficit under control, right? So Great Britain, uh, Great Britain PLC is making more than it costs us to run it, yeah? The moment that happens, we can start paying off the debt. And it looks promising, which is why they've said this is the end of austerity. I actually think the Conservative Party are fiscally responsible. And people might not have liked it. Well, they're more and... fiscally responsible than Labour, but then, you know, my 12-year-old son's more fiscally responsible than Labour. But the bottom line for... for me is, Daniel, nothing that is going on in terms of the, the sort of the macroeconomic sector of this country has got really much to do with the government. It's happening because of markets. It's not happening because of the government. Yeah, most of the jobs made actually were not low-paid, were not really low-paid jobs. They weren't uh, these minimum contract hours. They were made from companies like... The one I work for, employing more people. Yeah. And it, it, it was private enterprise that's driving the economy forward. So, you know, and but, but that we, the only way we get a better public sector is by having more of that. Yeah? You can't... You, Cor, Corbyn, I mean, Corbyn and his front bench, they're like relics. They're like dinosaurs of yeah. a bygone era. Their politics doesn't work. And uh, the day that a Marxist gets into number 10, I'm taking my family of five and I'm moving somewhere else because every, every, everyone's worried about Brexit, right? Oh, Brexit, what's going to happen, yeah. yeah? It only represents a small part of our trade. If Jeremy Corbyn and his bunch of probably runs the worst um, uh, Majesty's opposition in, in probably political history, yeah. right? right? Now, uh, you know, if he got into power, that's the real threat here. No, I don't disagree with any of that. I do not disagree with any of that. But the bottom line as well uh, is that I suppose my point was not specifically against this individual government, but against all governments, really, because most governments over the last several decades that I can remember have all been so short-termist and so kind of all about themselves and all about survival that they haven't really provided a plan for the future. They haven't really come up with anything uh, that could be carried on, any kind of major... Uh, sort of projects of, of um, you know, a celebration of the country or anything to do with building up the infrastructure. Nothing. It's all been kind of short-termism, patching bits here, patching bits there. Do you know what I mean? I do, and I sort of think immigration is that, because they say, well, we need more people, don't we, because everyone's getting older. Yep. I kind of scratch my head and go, well, those people get old, though, that come in. Well, well, they, yeah. well yeah, but they also, they also said that the birth rate was dropping, which it was. Yeah, but, but, but you understand what, what I'm saying is, and as a government, what you should be saying to your own people is, listen, guys, we're going to make it easier for you to get work in childcare. We're going to, make you, we're going to give you extra money if you have more children, like they do in a lot of nations. Well, why is the answer always important people from that? You know, we need to get real. I think it's partly I, I, because we live in a global world now, though, Daniel, because every country in the world pretty much has immigration now. There's hardly, I don't think you can point to one country in the world that doesn't have a large portion of its members coming from other, other countries. I think Japan doesn't. I think 
I think it's pretty homogenous Japan. But I think that I'm not next you know, on Japan. It's, it's not. It's not about. It's not about immigration. It's what type of immigration there is. If you just flood when we joined the EU, right? Oh yeah, sixty thousand might come within the first three months. I think the first month it was three hundred and something thousand. So if you flood another part of a, of a continent with basically tradesmen and, and unskilled workers. Well, you're talking about the poles that came, but most of them have gone back now. No, they haven't actually. Yeah, I, they live, I, I live. I live in an area. Well, yeah, but because they've probably made made some wedge and they've gone back. Yeah, they have. But, but I, that's my I point. Yeah, but every single cafe and restaurant you go in, there's probably an Eastern Europe. What will happen when Moldova joins soon? What you'll get is a fresh wave of people gravitating to the best economies. And is that good? I don't think it is. I don't think it's necessarily bad either. Daniel, thanks very much indeed for your call, though. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344-499-1000 is the number. Uh, Flat says this. Uh, Mike, the government is the only corporation in the world where the employee controls the employer. Utter madness. That's true. And Steve has sent me a story that we've covered, I think, here before about incompetence. And it's from uh, a BBC news story down in Taunton uh, where there's an unused fire control centre which was built supposedly to coordinate uh, the fire and rescue services down in that part of the world. But it's never been used. Uh, it's never been occupied. Uh, and it's sat there empty for years and years and years. And apparently it is now uh, going to be flogged off. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Richard said, always buy wine with a cork. It keeps the Iberian cork oak forest alive. Cork is the single most sustainable product there is. The more wine you drink, the more environmentally friendly you'll be. Yeah, well, I mean, there are it, it do's and don'ts about all of that, really, aren't there? So uh, we'll move on from that one uh, swiftly and talk to Julia Harrington, uh, who is a head teacher at Queen Anne's School. Uh, she's also got pupil Evie with her because we're going to talk to them about exam tips because, funnily enough, uh, a lot of people getting close to doing GCSEs this year uh, and doing mocks for next year. Lots of stress going on, lots of worry going on in lots of households, lots of parents hiring, lots of private tutors, all that kind of thing. Let's find out if they've got any great tips that we can pick up and hand down uh, to our children. Julia, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, it's a nervous time of year for people, isn't it, who are worried about uh, uh, their uh, their futures, I suppose. They've got GCSEs. They've got a new, uh, a new kind of um, uh, scoring system that they have to worry about. I was, t- yeah. I was hearing from somebody the other day that mock exams are actually marked harder than real GCSEs. I don't know if that's true. Well, I think it depends on the school. I think what schools are trying to do is make sure that the, the students are well prepared. Or what, what we're trying to do is make sure that the students understand how their brains work. So this is part of our Brain Can Do program where we work with neuroscientists and psychologists to mm. help our students and their parents understand how brains work. Because, of course, revision is one of those things which causes a lot of stress, as does going to an exam. And what we're trying to do is unpick that and say, well, look, you know, highlighting, underlining, rereading, it works to some extent, but it's not the best thing to do. And in fact, it's the worst way to try to revise. And actually, there are all sorts of different, um, different, different ways of revising which are proven by science. And Brain Can Do is very much about the science behind learning that will help you to be most effective in your learning and know what to do when you're going into that all-important exam. Mm. And so, you've discovered so, some things which might not otherwise have been um, obvious, I suppose I might say. Yeah, well, I think uh, one of the things that, uh, that that 
that's been covered through... We, we're just publishing a revision guide, basically, which has all sorts of different things in it about space learning and cognitive load and interleaving, which all sounds very complicated. But mm. what it comes down to, basically, is that your brain actually functions in a particular way. And if you understand how it functions, people tend to say, I've got a bad memory. No, actually, you've got bad memory strategies because actually your memory is as good as anybody else's and okay. it's how you, how you get things into it. So one of the things that we've been looking at with our students uh, is that le- if you if you actually if you if you have a trigger to find a way to actually it's called repetitive pairing. So we said lemon, smell lemon, smell a lemon. Think of a situation where you really know where you are confident, where you feel good, and where you're aware of all of the good things about you. And you link that to smelling a lemon. You do that regularly before you go into an exam. You do it before you go into the exam. Actually, that will help you because one of the things we know about smell is the easiest sense to condition. And there's a study done by the Norwegian University of Science and Technology that has shown that receptors in the nostrils go straight up to the hippocampus. Hippocampus is where you store information which triggers your emotional responses. So it's a double whammy, really, with lemons or okay. whatever it is. So would that be a case of, say, having the lemon while you're revising or smelling lemon while you're yes. revising well, stuff that you... Well, having you, lemon, have, you could do that, but having a lemon and conditioning yourself that when you've got the lemon with you, you actually think of good, positive things so you feel confident and uh-huh. in a good place as well as while you're revising, and then that will help you to okay. retrieve those memories. There are lots of others. I mean, that, that's only a very small part of it. A lot of the work that we've done is, is far more... Um, about you know that the that actually spaced practice which actually means that you don't sitting and cramming for five hours on one topic will not work and these are the reasons why yeah. but these things will work so spaced practice looking at something for 20 minutes then going off and do something else because you need to give your brain time to forget and then when it has to retrieve that information again it's like a bit like a muscle really the right. effort of lifting it back out of the memory reinforces it helps understanding and our girls know that actually if they do that and that they use space learning over a period of time if they actually are able to work together to test each other testing each other is a really good way to make sure that 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 knowledge is embedded the conditions in which your brain learns are very much uh very very much a part of your understanding really and Um, you've got a pupil evie with you julia do you mind i have would you like to speak do you mind if i just speak to her for a second yeah um Evie, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome to Talk Radio. Hello, good afternoon. Hello, Evie. Are you? Uh, what are you studying for at the moment? So I'm studying for my A levels. I'm taking A levels in history, psychology, and English literature. Okay. And for your revising, I mean, do you find revising improves your memory, or is it the other way around? No, definitely. Revision is key in bringing back that information that you've perhaps forgotten over the years. So. I know that my like before this um, lemon technique kind of come into play, me and my friends, we'd go to our sixth form centre where there's loads of whiteboard space and we'd have a blank whiteboard in front of us and we'd project everything that we can remember onto this and then fill in the gaps with our notes. And I find it really helps like solidify the memory of what we've been learning. Right. So if you've got something almost physical to do, that helps you? Yeah, definitely. I think a physical reminder that you, have, you will be given a blank slate in the exam and a physical reminder that you are going to have to fit it is uh, really helpful in revision. Okay. And have you found this this particular um, style of revision something that's changed the way that you work? Like, do you find yourself having to, to do less revision, but you're more efficient at it? Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, effective revision is a lot better than sitting in your room till three o'clock in the morning yeah. revising. 
you know that if you sleep better, you will revise better. It's more about what you do, not how much you do. Mm. Okay. And what are you hoping to do once you obviously pass these exams with flying colours? Are you going to go to university? Have you got a job in mind? Yeah, I'm hoping to go to university to read history and politics, but I guess we'll see how the lemon technique goes and see if it's successful. Yeah, well, if you read politics, then maybe you could figure out what on earth is going on in the political world in which (laughs) we currently live, because nobody else knows, so don't let anybody tell you they do. (laughs) Great, thank you very much. Evie, thank you. Can I just speak back to Julia for a second? Yes, of course, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, I've just been told it's Miss Harrington to her, but uh, I'm sure that she can call you Julia, can't she? <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Now, listen, I've got a 14-year-old son who's currently studying his mocks, uh, and, and he's actually doing one GCSE, I think, this year. Uh, who's, yeah. who's To him, revision is all a new thing, and it's not something he's he's taking to very well. Mm. So can I get mm. a copy of your book and give it to him? You will he be able to read can. it? And I, I, don't, I, don't mean send me, I don't mean send me a, a free one. I just mean, can I buy it somewhere? No, 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 don't worry. I'll, I'll, email, I'll email you an electronic copy, but you can get hold of it. Anybody can get hold of it. It's info at braincando.com, and okay. we, can, we can get it out to people. Um, and, yeah, it will certainly help them to understand how to revise effectively and efficiently, as Evie said, and actually, very importantly, get enough sleep so that yeah. your brain has got time to download all of that information that's going in. And one of the things that people always say is that, you know, I spent all this time at school doing algebra. It was no use to me. I learned Latin. It didn't help me. I mean, presumably, you'll say, you'll say to me that if this revision technique is good for revision, it's also good for lots of other things in, in life when you get past oh, education. completely. Very, very, very important, actually. Revision techniques, they're not just useful for that hurdy-burly of school exams. Learning to learn, understanding how to manage your thinking are really important skills for the rest of your life. And that's one of the things which I think is really rewarding about this programme, that we know that they're not just going to be useful during school years. They're going to go on and on being helpful. Okay. Well, that's going to be very helpful for an awful lot of parents listening, I'm sure. Julie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Julie Harrington and her pupil, Evie, are both very, very much in favour of this system. And I think it's probably worth checking it out. They're from Queen Anne's School, uh, which is near Reading, of course. And, uh, you know, good luck to them, because if you've got a teenager, you'll know that it is the bane of everybody's life getting them to do the revision that you want them to do. And you don't really want to force them to do it, because then you don't feel as if they're doing it because they want to do it, in which case they're probably not doing it right. But, uh, you know, if you haven't got kids, you probably don't care. But maybe uh, this is a technique that you can use for other things as well. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.